Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, May 16, 2019, is a Petraeus Hertog Lecture on Leadership. In this talk, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Rick Atkinson speaks with General David Petraeus about the first 21 months of the Revolutionary War. It's a real privilege to be on stage this evening with Rick Atkinson, someone for whom I have long had enormous respect and someone with whom I've shared some very unique experiences over the years, not the least of which was combat in the early days in Iraq, as I'll explain in a moment. Rick is, of course, an exceptional historian and journalist. He has an incredible eye for detail, extraordinary research skills, a beautiful writing style, a mastery of descriptive metaphors, and a tremendous ability to provide historical context. And the subject of his new book, as you heard, the first of a trilogy on the American Revolution may prove particularly relevant and timely as Americans once again seem to question who we are, what we stand for, and what government should and should not do for our citizens. Now, my relationship with Rick goes back a number of years. He's the same age I am, uh, and his father was a career Army officer, so Rick was raised on Army posts around the world, many of which I served on subsequently. He actually had an appointment to my West Point class, 1974, but ultimately decided to go elsewhere. And so we got to know each other when I was the aide of the Chief of Staff of the Army during the Gulf War, when Rick was writing for the Washington Post and researching what would become Crusade, the untold story of the Gulf War, which was a great chronicle of that war. We stayed in touch over the intervening years, and when in February 2003, the 101st Airborne Division, which I was privileged to command at the time, deployed to Kuwait to prepare for the invasion of Iraq, someone suggested I allow Rick to be an embedded journalist with me and the 101st, and I was delighted to accommodate. That led to Rick's book and the Company of Soldiers, which I think may have been your first top 10 New York Times bestseller about the invasion of Iraq and the fight to Baghdad, and it was written largely from the perspective of shadowing me as I commanded the great 101st. Coincidentally, he learned of his third Pulitzer Prize over a satellite phone during the famous dust storm that brought all our operations to a halt early on for some 48 hours, so we had something to celebrate uh, during that period. Some of the observations I made during the fight to Baghdad proved reasonably quotable, and reading later in his book reminded me that everything is on the record with a journalist, <laughs> unless it is clearly established otherwise. This is particularly true when it came to my repeated rhetorical question, tell me how this ends, as I realized that virtually all the rosy assumptions that underlay the plans for Iraq were invalid. In fact, tell me how this ends would be repeated to me for many years, especially from members of Congress, not just about Iraq, uh, but also about Afghanistan, and it became the title of a book on the surge in Iraq as well. We have been close ever since, and we have even done events together, such as one that was titled The Commander and the Journalist, and I am therefore very pleased to be his interviewing viewer this evening. So, Rick, as your publisher observed about you, uh, after the extraordinary success of your World War II trilogy, 
which earned her your third Pulitzer and your first book to debut at number one on the New York Times bestseller list, as he observed, quote, another writer would have dubbed himself Mr. World War II and spent the rest of his career burnishing that brand, but not Rick. After some preliminary research, he decided to take on an entirely new war, the American Revolution. So, Rick, why abandon World War II for the American Revolution? What more is there to say about it? Um, well, I've asked myself that several <laughs> times, Dave. Um, first of all, thanks. It's good to be here with you all in this wonderful space, and good to be here with you, my old friend. Um, you know, when I was finishing Volume 3 of the Liberation Trilogy and thinking about what to do next, the obvious thing would have been to pivot to the Pacific and do for that campaign what I'd done for the Mediterranean and Western Europe. It would have required me, among other things, to start the war over again <laughs> at Pearl Harbor or earlier, and that had no appeal. And I was taken with a story that's really stuck with me since I was a kid, as it has with many... Of you all, I'm sure, and that's, that's our creation story. I've just always found it to be a profoundly uh, affecting story. Uh, the characters engage me. Uh, it's the story of, uh, of who we are, where we came from, what our forebears believed. And uh, I think the most profound question that any people can ask themselves, what they were willing to die for. And so in 2013, I decided at this point in my career, I can do whatever the hell I want to do, and that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> so so, uh, so I've, I've, I've pitched into it, and I have no regrets, because I think uh, today in 2019, it's even more relevant than I had anticipated it might be in, in 2013. I think that's right. But what about the archival challenges? I mean, how are you compare and contrast, say, researching World War II or researching the revolution? Um, the archives are quite different. The archives that I feel like I'd, I had mastered for World War II are virtually useless uh, for uh, the Revolutionary War. Uh, so I've had to learn historiography in a, in a different way for a different period. Um, the, the archives for the Revolutionary War include this wonderful place, as you might expect, the Massachusetts Historical Society, uh, the greatest uh, repository of 18th century documents, uh, particularly relating to the revolution, are in all, all places uh, Ann Arbor. Um, Michigan was not one of the 13 colonies. <laughs> Uh, but there was a wealthy industrialist who was a collector, and he began buying the, the papers of, particularly the papers of British generals who had fought in uh. the Revolution. Uh, their descendants, in some cases, were strapped for money, and they were willing to sell them. So, for example, the papers of uh, Thomas Gage, who was the commander in Boston when the Revolution began, they're in Ann Arbor. The papers of uh, George Germain, who was the uh, George III's minister for... Uh, for, the, for America, he was really the Robert McNamara of the war. He, he was the director of the war. His papers are in Ann Arbor. So um, the archival challenges are substantial. The uh, fact that there were no typewriters then means there's a lot of 18th century cursive to try to decipher. I spend a lot of time in Britain. And, uh, for example, Queen Elizabeth II owns the papers of George III. And... She decided uh, three years ago that she was going to open them up to the public Ooh. and that she was going to allow a small number of uh, scholars to come in one at a time 
to look at him, and I was one of the first in. And so every day I would show my badge at the Henry VIII gate and show it again at the Norman Tower and climb 102 stone steps and then 21 wooden stairs to the garret of the Round Tower, begun by William the Conqueror in the 11th century. And there are George's papers. (laughs) And they're fantastic. I mean, George was his own secretary until late in life when he began to go blind. So he wrote not only all of his correspondence himself, he made the copies. And there's a very tactile sense of being in his presence when you go through these mm-hmm. marvelous uh, documents. And this is the first time they've actually been used by historians? There's about 350,000 pages, and most of them are unpublished. Wow. And uh, one of the reasons that the Queen was persuaded to do this and to digitize these papers by uh, the wonderful royal librarian Oliver Urquhart Irvine was... I hope that's hyphenated. <laughs> yes, it is, of course. Uh, was that uh, they didn't know what they had because nobody had been through them. And so when I left after my month, I wrote a long memo. I found this and I found this and I found mm-hmm. this. And they, you know, these terrific archivists there said... Oh, that's fantastic. We had no idea this stuff was in there. So, um, yeah, some of the correspondence had been published. Some of his correspondence with Lord North, for example, Mm -hmm. his prime minister, uh, has been published. But there's a lot of detail in there that had not been published. He was a great list maker, for example, and he would write out recipes for insecticide, for example, and he would do theater reviews and and correspondence. I love lists of all the ships and all the... he, He would write, you'd appreciate this, Dave, he would... He made lists of all of his regiments serving in America, That's and right. he would yep. write uh, uh, the numbers of officers, the number of musicians in those regiments, the number of rank and file, and you can see his arithmetic scratchings in the side as he's adding them up. <laughs> you really feel like you're there with him. Uh, so that archive is important to me, mm-hmm. and I think it's important to scholars generally. By the way, I... This does beg the question of how somebody in Ann Arbor, Michigan, could possibly outbid the patrons of the New York Historical <laughs> Society. It was a this, long time ago. <laughs> there should be enormous remorse here. Um, you have always distinguished your writing, again, by providing the context. And you provide this beautifully uh, for England and the colonies before the battles of Lexington and Concord. How would you characterize the situation in England and then here in the early to mid Well, one of the things you realize when you're living with George III is that he is determined that he is not going to permit the British Empire to dissolve on his watch. Now, the British Empire has only been created in 1763 at the end of the Seven Years' War, what we call the French and Indian War, when Britain uh, acceded to a, a... They had enormous territorial gains as a result of defeating France and Spain, so they got Canada. They got valuable sugar islands. They got parts of India. They got a billion fertile acres west of the Appalachians in, uh, in America. And uh, George is determined that uh, the empire is not going to come apart, and it's not going to start with the American colonies pulling away. So this is kind of the strategic background mm-hmm. in Britain at the time. Britain in 1775... They're living large. They've got the greatest fleet that the world has ever seen. Uh, Things are very prosperous. They are moving into uh, the industrial age. They're ahead of virtually everybody else in the world. Uh, They're very inventive. Uh, Their their, uh, trade network is global. Uh, And the the common people uh, are living better. They're living longer. Health is improving. 
So you have to say that things in in England are are pretty good at this time. Here, I mean, briefly, we've got two and a half million people in America in 1775. 500,000 of them are black slaves. They're scattered from Maine to Georgia, so it's not a very dense population. Uh, New York has 20,000 people at that time. It's a little town on the tip of the island. Um, But we were also quite prosperous at the time. Things are ascendant here. We have a birth rate in America that exceeds by several times anything that has ever been seen in Europe. So this country, and Benjamin Franklin knows this very clearly. He studies demographics, and he's, he, he is very aware of the fact that this country is going to grow and grow and grow quickly, and that pretty soon we're going to be bigger in population than England. We're already, obviously, much bigger geographically. So there are two realms. They're joined together theoretically, politically, but in some ways they have grown apart over 150 years, and that's the problem. So as, as you know, I've studied counterinsurgency operations, written about them, and conducted them in a couple of different countries. I've heard and that. I, I have always maintained <laughs> that in such conflicts, the human terrain is a decisive terrain. So can you talk a bit about the human terrain in the colonies in the years approaching the first battles? Yes, and your, um, your concept of the human terrain and your emphasis on the human terrain, which I've seen through your eyes over the years, is important to me because I realize that that is a useful uh, way of understanding an insurgency, which is what the revolution is at heart. Mm-hmm. Um, here in America, the, the human terrain is really complicated, even more complicated than Shiites and Sunnis, perhaps. Um, you throw in the Kurds and, and the, the Kurds and the, uh, and the Baathists and all. <laughs> yeah, maybe not that complicated. So. One issue that we've got here is that of those two million white Americans, a large percentage are loyalists. John Adams claimed that it was one-third, one-third, one-third. A third were loyal, a third were kind of indifferent and trying to stay out of the way, and a third were rebels. That's probably not correct, and his, uh, his math has been uh, misinterpreted over the years. The number of loyalists, and loyalty is a shifting concept, If you've got the British Army in your backyard, you're probably more loyal than you're going to be after they leave and your rebel neighbors are over wagging their finger about how you'd better uh, adhere to the revolution. But probably 18 to 20 percent are loyal in this country. And so what the revolution is at heart is a civil war because, first of all, the rebels are extremely harsh in their treatment of those who are loyal. If you are not only loyal, if you're just kind of on the fence about whether you believe that uh, armed rebellion against your king is a good idea, you're subject to confiscation of your property, jail. There were a number of rebels who were put in uh, prison ships on the Hudson River just below Albany, for example. Uh, Some were lowered into an old Connecticut copper mine by windlass 70 feet below ground to these rock-walled cells just known as hell. Uh, beatings, executions in some cases. That civil war only gets worse as the war goes on. So the human terrain here is uh, uh, complex and reflects a, uh, political differences that are never going to be papered over. 
Uh, and then the, the British come in and they're trying to, uh, trying to tap that loyalist sentiment here. Part of the problem is they overestimate the number of the percentage of loyalists here. They never quite get it right. And that's a, that's a strategic miscalculation of the yeah. first order. And strategic misconception is something, of course, we've experienced a little bit of in recent decades. But what were the big strategic misconceptions at that time in addition to that one? Well, in addition to the, believing that there are more loyalists and that loyalty runs deeper and broader than it actually does, the, the strategic uh, misconception that if you let America slip away, the colonies slip away, that's the beginning of the end. It's a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. That's wrong. Because the American colonies do slip away, there are rebellious people in other uh, British colonies, and certainly in Ireland, but uh, it's the, the, the British Empire is not uh, dissolved by the American colonies breaking away. There's also a, a misconception that force, including brutal, uh, uh, deadly force if necessary, will force these recalcitrant rebels back to their duty. The king, who has never, in, in his long life, he never leaves England. He never even goes to Scotland. Uh, and he does not know America. And none of his ministers have ever been to America. And they just don't know the people who are living here and who have grown away from the mother country over 150 years. And they, they believe, having the largest best fleet the world has ever seen and a large substantial army that they can cow this, uh, these uh, insurrectionists um, back into the fold. And that is simply never going to happen. Um, as you know, it can only make it worse sometimes. Yeah. Could the British have done something to address the grievances and, and to be good counterinsurgents, uh, if you will? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, it's, it's a counterfactual question, and yeah. historians love counterfactuals because you can never be wrong. <laughs> 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 but, I mean, had there been, uh, had wiser heads prevailed in 1774 or 75, it's possible that a modus vivendi could have been found. No one had come up with the notion of a commonwealth, which, of course, is the way Britain essays its colonies subsequently, where you've got Australia or Canada who are bound in some loose way to the mother country, but basically they're autonomous and controlling their own destiny. And that's just uh, not a concept that has occurred to anyone at the time. And uh, if if some uh, far-seeing... Uh, statesmen had proposed it. It's not clear that it could have been accepted. Once the war starts, once the revolution is underway, once blood is shed, once the blood is in the gorge, it's hard for me to see that uh, there's any way that it's going to be resolved. And once the Declaration of Independence is promulgated, then there's no common ground that's going to be found. I must say, reading it, I certainly winced at various moments where you could say, gosh, what are they doing this for and why can't they see the light? But you're probably right that once the declaration is signed and issued, that there was no turning back. 
Let's turn to the expeditionary nature of this warfare. Yeah. Uh, we've obviously experienced that. In fact, you watched us deploy to war uh, in Iraq. Afghanistan's even tougher. Uh, but here you are, eight years of war across three thousands of open ocean in the age of sailing ships. And that appears particularly challenging. Um, how did the British cope, and what did they really think they were getting into in the beginning? Well, as you know way better than I do, expeditionary warfare is among the most difficult martial tasks, whether you're fighting in Vietnam or Central Asia in the 21st century or in the 18th century in North America. Uh, the age of sail really complicates things. Uh, you know, to sail westbound from uh, Irish or English ports, sometimes if, if you were really in good shape and the winds were right in the summer, you might be able to do it in four to five weeks. It might take you four to five months. Uh, so in the winter of 75, 76, there are uh, about 40 ships that are sent from uh, Britain and Ireland with, with uh, provisions because every time the British venture outside of Boston, they get ambushed. And so virtually everything that they've got, food, forage, tons and tons, thousands of tons of forage for the horses, clothing, virtually everything has to come from ports in, in home. And of those 40 ships... Uh, maybe a dozen of them get there directly. Others are blown to the West Indies. They're blown back to England. They're intercepted by rebel marauders. Um, so, for example, they send live sheep, and they pick out Lincolnshire sheep as the fittest to undergo a long sea voyage. 550 sheep, 40 of them arrive alive. When they move from Boston, when the British move from Boston in the summer of, uh, of uh, uh, 76 to New York, General Howe, your counterpart for the British in those days, asked for 950 horses because you need horses to pull your, your uh, artillery and to pull your supply wagons if you're going to go anywhere. They send him 950 horses. 450 of them died during the voyage across the Atlantic. There are horse carcasses being tossed over the side of these ships all the way across the Atlantic. Scores of others arrive, and they're in such bad shape, they're useless here. So those are some of the problems that they, they encounter. This goes on for years, and they don't really understand what it is that they're getting into when they begin this in 1775. I must say, you know, as, even as a student of the Revolution, I really had not come to grips with the daunting logistical lines of communication until re reading the kind of detail that you provide there. But, of course, we had our own logistical challenges here in the colony, shortages of gunpowder, saltpeter, salt, hard currency, shoes, hemp, etc. Yeah. How did we make do? Yeah, well, it was very, very difficult. I, Washington, commander-in-chief of the new Continental Army, um, writes... 75 letters in January and February of, of 1776 when he's commanding the force in Cambridge around Boston. The British basically are, are uh, bottled up in Boston. And of those 75 letters, more than half of them refer to munitions, particularly gunpowder, often in <clears throat> pleading, fretful terms. I need gunpowder. I cannot wage war without gunpowder. 
Salt. You mentioned salt. You need salt to, uh, to treat beef and pork. Otherwise, you cannot move your army anywhere. You cannot rely on fresh supplies of these things. And it takes about two bushels of salt. That's more than 100 pounds to, to cure 1,000 pounds of pork. Well, before the revolution, we were getting about 15 million bushels of salt a year, about half of it from the West Indies and about half of it from England and Southern Europe. Once the revolution begins, there's a blockade. It cuts off two-thirds of the salt supply. It's a big problem. So you see recipes in newspapers and flyers that are scattered around on how to make salt. John Adams at one point writes about how all the women and children are down at the Jersey Shore trying to make salt. You have to boil off 400 gallons of seawater to get one bushel of salt. It takes an enormous amount of firewood. Uh, Virginia spent 7,000 pounds, which was a large sum of money in those days, to build evaporation ponds around the Chesapeake Bay. They, out of it, they got something like 50 bushels of salt. It was the most expensive salt in the history of salt. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, these, these issues, these logistics, uh, you know better than anybody exactly how complex logistics can be. And they were really complicated for eight years of war. Truly daunting. But those shortages notwithstanding, it's clear from volume one that the most significant shortage faced by the Americans and really Washington was the lack of adequate American soldiers and adequate leaders, uh, adequate in terms of numbers, training, discipline, especially discipline, experience, expertise, and just sheer staying power. Yeah. Every time in the militia's uh, enlistment ends, and they just walk off they walk and off. head home. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the challenges in this regard, because they were substantial. Yeah. Well, Washington shows up on July 2nd, 1775, as the commander-in-chief, First of all, he hasn't been in uniform in 17 years. And uh, his five years as a, as a soldier were spent under British command in, in command of a Virginia militia unit. So he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> it's pretty evident, by the way. Yeah, it's quite evident. He displays his ignorance very quickly. Uh, one of the things that we've got at play here is here's a Virginian, and he's come to take over an army that's almost exclusively from New England. Now, Virginians and New Englanders, they're like foreign countries at that time. And he writes quite disparagingly about these dirty New Englanders. I can't stand, you know, to be around them. Well, these are your men, man. Uh, And so for him, first of all, to grow accustomed to them and their ways, uh, for him to build that mystical bond between leader and led, you know this better than anybody I know, um, that's a work in progress for him. Um, subordinate commanders, he's got a few that turn out to be really good. Henry Knox, a 25-year-old overweight Boston bookseller, turns out to be a genius at gunnery. He's the father of American artillery. Nathaniel Green, uh, a, a Quaker anchor smith from Rhode Island who's got virtually no military experience at all, one of the great generals in American military history. Well, teasing out these, these characters and discovering their talents is a long, slow, painful process because there's a lot of dross along with the gold. And that goes, that's all the way down the line. They've got some experience 
from the French and Indian War. So there's a fair number of men who have heard shots fired in anger, but they haven't commanded large units. It's, uh, you know, if you've got a political connection in your home colony, you're a general. <laughs> and that's not necessarily good. Um, so it, it, it's a painful thing to watch even 240 years later. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about the commander-in-chief, uh, about Washington. You obviously studied Eisenhower yeah. uh, for the trilogy. Yeah. Um, and in some respects, uh, Washington, a bit like Eisenhower in World War II, was not a particularly gifted tactician yeah. at that level. Yeah. Though he does have some good moments uh, in the end of 1776 and then in early 1777. Yep. But what does he have going for him, really, at the end? What's the real genius here? Yeah, what is, what is the genius? And this is why we will be talking about and writing about Washington for another 240 years at least. Well, you're right. He's not a particularly good tactician, and he does have parallels with Dwight Eisenhower. I had the privilege of living with him metaphorically for 15 years. I feel like I know Eisenhower pretty well. And he makes Eisenhower does not see the battlefield spatially and temporally the way a great captain like Napoleon does, and Washington does not either. Um, But first of all, he's learning by doing. He's learning, uh, among other things, the primacy of civilian control of the military. That's one thing that he's got going for him. And from the very beginning, from July 1775, an extraordinary percentage of his correspondence is to Congress, and it's to Congress acknowledging Congress's authority over the army. That's really important. And he's making it up as he goes along. There's no rule book that says this is the way it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And Congress in general, the country is concerned about the dangers of a military uh, junta, essentially. They know the history of Cromwell. They know the dangers of a military that's out of control. And Washington does his very best for eight years of war to assure them that that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen if he's commander-in-chief. That, I think, is really an extraordinary gift, not only to the revolution, but to us uh, as, a, as a people, to the mm-hmm. United States Army, first and foremost. He's, um, as a, as a, as a command, he's got a brain organized for executive action. He has an extraordinary memory. He's a clear writer and speaker, People don't come away confused about his orders, about his intent. Um, He's got charisma. He's uh, almost 6'2", which is huge in 1775. Mm -hmm. He towers over virtually everyone. Uh, Jefferson says he's the greatest horseman of his age. He's the thing to behold on a horse. So he comes into a room, and everyone knows he's a commander. Um, that counts. That's important. It's important for morale purposes. It's important for... You're asking soldiers to live in miserable conditions. You're asking soldiers to risk their lives, in some cases give their lives. He's got the capacity to do that. Um, Not everybody has that, obviously. Um, And then he's got a good eye for talent, for subordinate talent. So he's the one who sees Henry Knox, this kind of fat guy... Uh, he's missing a couple fingers that he's lost in a hunting accident. Uh, but boy, does he know artillery. And he sees Nathaniel Green. Nathaniel Green is a private 
In the Rhode Island militia, he can't, he, he, he runs for, to be elected lieutenant. And they say, no, nah, you have a funny gait. You'll look funny marching with the unit. And so they declined to make him a lieutenant. And again, he makes ship's anchors for a living. He makes ship's anchors for a living. He has <laughs> great big, qualities. Big, cal- big calluses yeah. on his hands. But he's an autodidact, though. He's a great reader, and he has a big brain. Yep. And uh, it turns out that he is an extraordinary commander. Benedict Arnold, yep. the finest uh, tactical commander on either side in the first couple of years of the war, I would argue. Not only is he born to lead other men in the dark of night on land, he can do it on water. Because as a merchant in Connecticut, he had had a, a small squadron that he had helped build the ships. He had sent the ships to the West Indies and to Canada uh, in, in trading enterprises. And he knew how to do this. And so when we were retreating from Canada, incidentally, we invaded yeah, Canada. I, I, you know I completely forgotten we did that. <laughs> yeah, Very did early that. on, yeah. one of our first yeah, actions is to launch an offensive <laughs> into Canada. Yeah, it's a war of, uh, you know, for na- national sovereignty. And the first thing we do is tell the Canadians, oh, by the way, you're going to be the 14th colony, like it or not. And here's an army to try and enforce. It was a catastrophe. In the retreat, the British are hot on their heels coming down Lake Champlain. And the British are building a pretty substantial squadron to, to come in, and they're headed for Literally New York. constructing it. Uh, I mean, actually built, chopping the timbers, literally. planing them. Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing yeah, what they and do. These aren't little bateaux. No. They're building three-masted ships. Yes. Yeah. And uh, they're doing this at the north end of Lake Champlain. Mm-hmm. And uh, Arnold is told, you know something about sailing. Build a fleet and go out and fight the Royal Navy. Because it's the Royal Navy who's coming at him. He does just that. He quickly puts together this cockle shell squadron. Mm-hmm. They uh, meet in October 1776, this fairly formidable British force coming down, including several hundred Indian canoes. Uh, Lots and of cannons. cannons cannon yeah. fire. It's, it's, it's a real Donnybrook. Uh, and they fight at Valcour Island about halfway down uh, Lake Champlain. The American squadron is basically destroyed, but Arnold gets away, most of his men get away, and they delay the British long Mm -hmm. enough so that winter is coming. General Carleton, who's the commander of the British in Canada, says, you know, I just don't think I can take New York this year. I'm going to wait, and I'm going to do it next year in 1777. So the British retreat back into Canada. It buys time. He's traded space for time. It buys enough time to prepare to meet that onslaught in 1777, and that's when Saratoga happens, the and turning and point. Ticonderoga and Ticonderoga. And yes, this, yes. So. so at any rate, Arnold, now Arnold has some issues. <laughs> that's in volume two. <laughs> that's in, yeah, or volume three. He's actually, he turns traitor late in 1780. So, uh, and he's a man with grievances and you know, just doesn't get respect. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't get respect. <laughs> At least not as much as he wants uh, or that, believes that, he deserves. That's, although he gets respect from his superiors. Washington yeah, knows he's true. a fighting general. Yep. Now, to come back to Washington, you assess that as a political general, Washington is unsurpassed in American military history. What do you mean by that? I mean, not a partisan general, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not a Republican or a Democrat. There's no such thing in those days. Um, but he's political in the sense of, uh, first of all, being able to engage directly with his political masters. 
Eisenhower does the same thing. Eisenhower, Franklin Roosevelt says, I, I chose Dwight Eisenhower to be commander-in-chief of the Allied Expeditionary Force because he's the best politician among the generals. Eisenhower didn't think that was a slur. He knew, first of all, that the United States Army is the biggest political organization in the country and always will be. But it means that he's got the capacity to, uh, to uh, motivate people, subordinates, superiors, equals, to do what he wants to do. He's got the political gifts of finding out what it is that's necessary to get from here to there. That's the essence of politics. It's a kind of deal-making. Um, and um, his engagement, for example, with colonial governors, and their state governors after the middle of 1776, he writes lots of letters to the governor of Connecticut and the governor of New York and so on, um, recognizing that he has to have these relationships, that it's really all about relationships, because he needs things from them, they need things from him, too. They need the protection of the Continental Army. It's transactional to some extent. Uh, and he's, in, he's instinctively good at it. And it gets better as it goes along. So um, it's really a, a, it's something to watch. It's something I really admire. And here he's very much like Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. And how does his relationship with the Army evolve? Well, he started out by referring to those dirty New Englanders, and uh, he's very disparaging of the officers that he encounters at Cambridge in the summer of 1775, and um, he's really kind of sneering about them. He, he, he doesn't do this publicly, but in his correspondence to his brothers, and, and he's got a few confidants, and um, um, it's, it's not a very pretty uh, picture that he's posing. He realizes... And it takes the vicissitudes that they're going to encounter, and it takes you know the few triumphs and the many defeats and the despair that they go through. Um, I think he comes to see these, this mystical bond between leader and led. He recognizes the sacrifice that these men are. Washington, when he dies in 1799, has more than 300 slaves at Mount Vernon. And so when he has left to take over the Continental Army in 1775, he's got scores of slaves to take care of business at Mount Vernon. And he's got overseers and so on. He doesn't really understand the sacrifice that's being made by men who are leaving their farms or leaving their little shops and leaving their families to go and fight at his side and risk everything. He doesn't really get that. It takes him a while to understand this sacrifice that they are making for him. And it, it, he has to know in his bones what it is that they're sacrificing in order to fight with him. And they have to know that he knows. I think that kind of relationship mm-hmm. uh, is it's the, it's the essence of leadership. And the last thing I'll say about him, in January 1777, where he is you know, by a chin whisker, he's missed, he's avoided uh, losing the war, catastrophe. And he writes, I think, pretty insightfully that a, these fractious people called Americans, and he's gotten to know them continentally at this point. He says a people uh, uh, not used to being ordered around will not be drove. They must be led. Well, there you go. 
And he's a leader. Yeah. He experiences a lot of reverses to get to that realization. He does. He loses in Western Long Island. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess Queens, Manhattan, yeah. uh, across all of New Jersey at one point in time That's before right. recovering uh, in the early part of 1777. Now, he has uh, an obscure former British lieutenant colonel who becomes his second-in-command who's interesting, Charles Lee. Yeah. Um, who is he? What does he bring to the table? And how does he meet his end? He's almost as fun to write about as George Patton, I'll say that. Um, <laughs> He's a very odd-looking guy. He's really spindly. People describe him as having almost no shoulders, and he's got an enormous nose. He's, he's got many nicknames. He's the sort of fellow who accumulates nicknames, most of them uncomplimentary. One of them is Nazo. Uh, um, he has a deep affection for dogs, and he's got a pack of dogs that tra- you know, travel everywhere with him. And he, he talks very openly about how um, he much prefers the company of dogs to the company of humans. He has a fair amount of experience in the British Army. He's become disaffected in part because he's not rising above the rank of lieutenant colonel, which is not insubstantial, but he's got combat experience. He's had combat experience here in the French and Indian War. He was badly wounded uh, near Ticonderoga, shot in the chest. Mm-hmm. You would appreciate yep, that, having been shot in the chest yourself. Um, and uh, he, so he emigrates. And he comes here, and he, for, for one thing, he's very outspoken as a radical. He believes strongly in the cause. He believes even more strongly in Charles Lee, but he, believe, he, he writes uh, quite uh, eloquently about the power of what it is you Americans think you're doing. He also uh, writes very forcefully about how your soldiers are just as good as those redcoats. Don't let them cow you into thinking that just because they've got those fancy uniforms, you can't fight them. Well, this this falls on welcome ears here. And so when the Continental Army is being put together, Charles Lee is given high rank, and he eventually becomes the number two to, to, to Washington. Washington relies on him a lot. Because he, he knows a lot about the, the intricacies of running an army, which Washington doesn't. Uh, um, unfortunately, his ambitions outrun his talent. And so you see, by the, by the time the war in New York here has turned ugly, you see him beginning to plot to be potentially a successor to Washington and to suggest that maybe Washington isn't up to it and that maybe the guy who is up to it is me, Charles Lee. Washington gets wind of this because Lee is in correspondence with Joseph Reed, who's Washington's closest confidant. He's a lawyer from Philadelphia. He's Washington's aide. And the two of them are writing letters back and forth. And one day, Washington opens a letter from Lee to, uh, to Reed, thinking it's official correspondence, and sees this disloyal exchange going on that they're really plotting behind his back. Washington, being very deft, folds the letter up, puts it back in the envelope, writes on it to, to Colonel Reed, his aide. The essence is, sorry I opened this by mistake, and hands it to him. Well, Reed knows the jig is up at that point. <laughs> Just about that time, Lee has been commanding the forces around White Plains. He's very dilatory in bringing his army down to join with Washington. Washington writes him eight times, pleading letters. Come on, man. 
please hurry. Please hurry. I'm really jammed up here. I've got the whole British Army. And Lee is taking his time. He gets to central New Jersey, and one night he makes a bad decision. He does not camp with his army. He decides to go to an inn nearby, and there's a British cavalry patrol. They have good intelligence. They're told, did you know that over in that inn, General Lee is spending the night? And they capture him, mid-December, 1776. And he's in uh, British custody. The British are deciding whether to hang him or not. They decide not to. But in fact, uh, Washington writes him a really elegant letter, again, very understated. I hope that someone who is in your position at this time meaning jail, can be as happy as you can be at this time. (laughs) He'll later be exchanged. He'll come back into the army. He disgraces himself in fighting in North Jersey, and he basically disappears from from the stage. Another great little subplot. Yes, it is. In this whole experience. So on the other side, you have General Henry Clinton. Uh, He served for four years as the British commander-in-chief, He wonders early on in the conflict how to gain the hearts and minds of the Americans. Uh, To return to that crucial subject, what techniques did they employ and why weren't they more successful? Yeah, the the phrase hearts and minds, Henry Clinton uses that phrase in 1776 in writing about how to try to suppress the insurrection. Um, and it's not any different than thinking about hearts and minds in Vietnam or anywhere else, for that matter. Uh, it's the same fundamental problem. Um, Clinton knows that, uh, that the British Army is not big enough in the terrain that they're trying to, uh, to uh, uh, corral is too big without having real support from the population. And um, he makes this point repeatedly without much success because one of the problems that they face is that when the British Army comes through and succeeds, for example, in New Jersey, in occupying New Jersey, incidentally, there are dozens and potentially hundreds of rapes of of New Jersey women, particularly by uh, German soldiers who are with the British at this time in uh, late 1776, that does not win hearts and minds. Uh, and when they come in and they occupy territory, the loyalists will come out and the loyalists will rally around and they wear red ribbons in their hat. And the longer your ribbon, the more loyal you are to the king. But when they leave, when the British army leaves, then the loyalists have no protection. And it's at that time that the rebels are very, very harsh in their treatment of those who've been wearing those red ribbons. And uh, the British never really solve this problem. They never have the capacity to, to, to occupy and to, to do the kinds of things that you know so well from Iraq and Afghanistan. You have to clear and hold. You have to clear and you have to hold. And they are able to clear in some yeah. cases, but they're never able to hold. Well, before turning to questions from the audience, uh, I thought it would be interesting to ask what you think are the three or four biggest takeaways for our current situation from the first year of the Revolutionary War. What situation would that be, Dave? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> the disruption of democracy in America, right? Uh, well put. Well, uh, you know, there are, there are lessons to be learned from history, and there are certainly lessons to be learned from our revolution. I mean, one of the first lessons is that we, we are a people who were born bickering. Disputation is in the national genome. And it should not be a surprise that today we are bickering and that we seem to uh, not find common ground easily. That's the way we've always been, really. Uh, that should be of some comfort. That's who we are. That doesn't mean we you know, can't give up on it. Um, uh, you know, another lesson to be learned is that in times of peril, we have had great leaders emerge to take care of what needs to be done. And leaders who have traits and characteristics that should remain true north for every citizen and should be demanded of our national leadership. And I'm talking about probity, of commitment to a cause larger than self, of, uh, of all the things that we cherish in George Washington, in Abraham Lincoln, in Dwight Eisenhower. Um, these are things that we as a people must demand. Um, and then another lesson is that no matter how difficult we think our Times are today, how difficult the challenges we face. We have faced much worse in the past. We have faced existential crises that, that make our current situation, our situations, pale. And we have managed to rally together somehow to combat those challenges, to overcome them, to, to thrive, really. And that should be very comforting. That's one of the main reasons to read history is to, 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 to see the the extraordinary ability of, of us as a people to, to, to move forward, to move ahead, to overcome. I remind myself of that constantly, by the way, and audiences occasionally yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, so here are some great questions. This one is from someone who clearly is a student of the Revolutionary War um, and asks, do you have any idea why Howe let Washington escape from New York when he could have trapped the Americans by seizing King's Bridge. Yeah, uh, I think King's Bridge, is not, King's Bridge was at the north end of Manhattan Island. Um, um, Howe let Washington escape across the East River after completely smashing the Americans in the Battle of Brooklyn, really, mm -hmm. in August of, of 1776. And Washington and his army really slapped around badly, have fallen back under Brooklyn, this little village at the time. And they're right there. They're pinned against the East River. And in the night, Washington decides that he's going to evacuate his army. And a very providential fog descends. And the army gets away. Uh, Howe doesn't realize it until early morning when he realizes that the, the emplacements that, have, uh, th that the rebels have occupied are all empty. That's really where he lets him get away. He, he has not pressed the fight there for actually a good reason. The, the fortifications that Washington has retreated into are pretty formidable. There's lots of cannons. The cannons outgun the British field guns. A, a, a frontal assault to take those positions would have been very, very costly. Remember that William Howe commanded the force that walked up Breed's Hill at the Battle of Bunker Hill where a thousand British casualties, every member of Howe's staff was killed or wounded around him. He came back down Breed's Hill and his white stockings were red with the blood of his men. Howe knows how difficult it is to attack frontally. He doesn't attack. Washington gets away. 
That's why it happens. And, you know, he was criticized severely in Britain afterwards, but tactically it's not, um, it, it, it's, it's not the wrong decision that he made. Here's another one. Was the diplomatic separation of the 13 colonies from the British Empire ever seriously considered, or was a costly and bloody war the only way of going forward? Well, I think you have to say that it was considered. There were negotiations. Franklin was in uh, London for years, 16, 17 years, and toward the end of his time there, when he he left in the spring of 1775, he was negotiating with uh, emissaries from from the crown to try and find a solution. They never got close. Uh, And incidentally, Franklin, who had been the biggest supporter of George III, uh, when George first became king, by this time is completely radicalized. He's a regicide by this point. He's, he's ready to kill his king. Uh, so you have to say that even though there were efforts to find some political solution to it, none of them really uh, had a chance of surviving. It, it took bloodshed to do it. In your research, what did you discover that was most surprising? Mm. Well, happily, you find surprising things every day. I'm surprised, really, at the British strategic misconceptions. I think that that's what sticks with me, some of the things that we talked about. Mm -hmm. On the eve of the war, what were the key features of an emerging American identity? Um, That's a good question, and it's a tough one, because... um, an American identity, as we would think of it today, is something that really is emerging. There's a Virginia identity, and there's a New England identity or Massachusetts identity, uh, and they have yet to coalesce. Um, and so what we see as part of the, uh, the, the process of the revolution is this merging of it. The army is a conduit for it to some extent, where you've got different regiments from different parts of of the country coming together, not unlike the army today, uh, and forming an identity. I mean, what you see in the, in the young America of 1775 is a people who are accustomed to being left alone and to finding their own way. And they have carved um, this pretty extraordinary uh, set of colonies and tiny cities out of what obviously had been a wilderness, by the way, by uh, ousting the Native Americans, let's not forget the cost that's, uh, and by importing 500,000 slaves. This is not cost-free morally. Uh, But they are used to being left alone because the British have left them alone. Uh, We are British, by the way, at this point. But, and when the British are trying to raise money because they're nearly broke as a consequence of this victorious war they've waged uh, in the Seven Years' War and impose taxes and leave regiments here. This really sticks in the crawl, and this is part of the cause for the political frictions that lead to the revolution. You know, someone we haven't talked about here yet who puts in an appearance late in the book is, of course, Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, who starts getting uh, a claim as an artilleryman, yep. uh, comes to Washington's attention. Does, what is his role so far, and when does he emerge as Washington's right-hand man and trusted aide-de-camp? Good idea for a musical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
well, uh, you, you all know his, his ex- story is extraordinary. Son of a whore, you know the lyrics. Uh, uh, and he is an art- he's come he's studying at Columbia, King's College as it's known then. And um, he joins the army and he's a young artilleryman. He has a battery, he has two guns. Uh, he, he, he fought Hoping a war. Hoping for a war, actually. He, he wrote, he, wrote about how he wanted a war. So he he did. He's himself. looking as a war, as a, as a social elevator, basically. Yes. And he gets his war. And it <laughs> is a social elevator for him. Um, he's, he, he catches Washington's eye because, A, he's really smart. He's socially graceful. Um, he has a good pen. Um, he's got some connections, uh, even though he hasn't been in America for very long. And so Washington will pluck him out of the artillery and make him an aide in 1777. And that really is the beginning of, uh, of, of, of Lin-Manuel Miranda's tale. <laughs> and we look forward to volume two uh, yes. on how that develops. I, I've actually thought, Benedict. <laughs> um, here's a really interesting one, uh, not completely related to the book, but... In your opinion, why do you think America's revolution worked and France's did not? Yeah, I'm not an expert on the French Revolution, but obviously it took an ugly turn. Um, I don't know that I can answer that coherently. One of the things that uh, happened in France that did not happen here was the kind of, uh, of, of bloodlust that leads to um, hundreds being murdered. Um, uh, the, the king is executed. The queen is executed. Um, we never get to that point here. We remain civil enough. There's no Robespierre here. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, even though there are, there, it is a civil war here, and it is uncivil at times, um, there's the, the, the notion that there need to be reprisals toward the end of the revolution stays pretty muted. Now... Loyalists are forced into exile, and their land and their properties are uh, appropriated, expropriated, uh, and it's pretty ugly. And many of them uh, are forced to leave the country, but it's not like marching them to the to the gallows or to the guillotine. And um, we're the better for it. And obviously, when when it gets to that point when the guillotine seems to be the solution to your problems, you're going to have trouble reining it back in, and you're leaving space for Napoleon to to enter um, into the political space. So the final question, um, what did Martha Washington do during the early days of the revolution? (laughs) How did she feel about George's role? She's fantastic, actually. You know, uh, huzzah for Martha. Um, (laughs) She had never been north of Alexandria, Virginia, when her husband goes off to take command. Uh, She was the richest widow in Virginia when she caught George's eye. Um, Her husband had died young, leaving her with a couple of kids. Uh, Washington had not been married. Uh, Their courtship was kind of a, a, a marriage of convenience, and it turned into a real love match. Um, you can see, and uh, he's this big, towering dude, and she's maybe 5'1", and there are accounts of how when she wanted his attention, she would reach up and grab him by the collar and pull, her down, pull him down to her level. Um, she joins him in Cambridge early in the war, and she spends 
the, the, the American Revolution lasts more than 3,000 days, and she spends more than half of those days with him in camp. Um, and it's good for him. Uh, it would be difficult for Holly to join you in some of the hell holes where you've been. But uh, it, it, she is his, um, she's his confidant, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. She's got good common sense. She uh, is socially graceful. She helps to entertain. She helps to, uh, uh, helps to facilitate his relationship with his officers and his officers' wives, uh, including Knox's wife, for example, Green's wife. They're often coming to and from camp. Um, uh, so she's an important figure, I think. And um, you're commander-in-chief of an insurrection for eight years in very, very arduous circumstances. Um, you're living in a tent for the most part or in rude quarters. You're eating bad food. Um, it's cold, even though you're the commanding general. Um, Washington is extremely robust. He seems never to get sick. He seems never to have a cold. He's 43 years old when he takes command in Cambridge. And I think one of the reasons that he remains as healthy and robust and and committed as he is, is Martha. Uh, I think their relationship is that important. So um, I I think that she's an, an important figure in our national history. Actually, one quick aside that probably contributed to George's robustness actually was that he'd had smallpox before. For sure. Uh, smallpox, 100,000 people die in North America between 1775 and 1782 of smallpox, including an ungodly number of soldiers. Uh, and smallpox is a whole other story, but Washington has had smallpox uh, as a young man uh, on a visit to Barbados. It, it left him pocked. He had, yes. he had pits on his face. Uh, but it left him immune, yes. and so he did not have to worry about this, this, this king of terrors, as smallpox was known. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you can see why I've been looking forward to, to this for a very long time, actually years, uh, when Rick told me that he was going to turn to the revolution. Uh, and I hope you'll join me in recognizing not just one of the foremost historians of his generation, but one of the foremost American military historians of all time. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.